Well, moms sure are special. Amen? Amen. So I, hey, we can give them a hand. And I am fortunate to have a good, special mama who happens to be here this morning. So I get, she's in town, so I get to preach in front of my own mom, which is a blessing. And, and we also know that there are many moms out here who Mother's Day is difficult for whether it's a wayward child, whether it's someone they've lost. We know that there's many women who have been unable to conceive, and we want you to know that we as a church grieve with you, and we pray for you, and, um, and God has a purpose in and through that somehow, some way. And so, but we just really want to honor all of our moms out here on this special, special day. Well, the leading figure of the religious revival in America known as the First Great Awakening was a British slender cross-eyed gentleman by the name of George Whitfield. Historians estimate that Whitfield preached over 18,000 times on American soil to roughly 10 million people, including 25,000 at one time in an open-air forum on the steps of the Boston Common in 1740. And unlike many of his contemporaries who preached in a very reserved, kind of monotone, academic manner, Whitfield was just like a ball of fire. He, he would cry, he would yell, his, he would move his body around, and he preached without any notes. He believed the gospel was meant to engage one's heart and one's mind, and he, and he preached from this place of conviction and emotion in a time when that was not the norm. And as you might imagine, as Whitfield went about preaching, he was often ridiculed for his unique style. And there were, there, there were a group of folks who called themselves the Hellfire Club. And they would stand to the side of Whitfield while he preached in these areas and they would mock him. And they would just mimic his gestures and mimic his intonation and, and mimic what he was preaching. And the leading figure in this group was a guy by the name of Thorpe. And so one day, Whitfield's out preaching in the open air, and he's doing what Whitfield does, and he's preaching, and Thorpe is making fun of him and mimicking him and repeating his words, when all of a sudden, Thorpe's heart was pierced by the very words he was repeating as he repeated the gospel that Whitfield was preaching and repented of his sins, and he believed the gospel. And later on in life, when Whitfield was reflecting upon kind of his uncommon evangelistic zeal and his uncommon life, Whitfield said these words. He said, you know, nothing is more generally known than our duties which belong to Christianity. And yet how amazing it, it seems nothing is less practiced. He says, nothing is more generally known than what we're supposed to do. And yet, in many ways, nothing is less practiced. So Whitfield's point is the issue is not information. The issue is obedience. And may I submit to us this morning that there may not be, there may not be a practice or a Christian responsibility more neglected in modern day American church than that of evangelism. Than that of evangelism. This is one of the reasons I've loved going through the book of Acts. Because it's reminded us of who we are. It's been a reminder of where we come from. It's, it's been a reminder that from the very beginning, we were a people created for and created to and committed to evangelism. 
When Jesus spoke to his followers in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28 in the Great Commission, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, till the end of the age, and we are still in that age. That age is still ongoing. We are the people of the Great Commission. As Roger spoke about a couple weeks ago, we are a Great Commission church. A church full of sinners seeking, gospel proclaiming, disciple making, baptizing, trophies of grace, and ambassadors of Christ. Who are sent into a dark world with the bright light of the gospel. And one truth that we must never forget as, as the church and as this local gathering that is Wayside Chapel is that the church by its nature exists on mission. The church by its nature exists on mission. Each one of us are on a lifelong mission trip. And the locations might change, but our mission does not. My dear seminary professor, Dr. Scott Harrell, I think hits the nail on the head when he writes these words. He says, The redemptive mission of God is the expression of God himself. So the redemptive mission of God becomes the essential expression of faith in the life of the believer. For the Christian, if there is no mission, there is no life. If there is no mission, there is no life. And we are all part of this mission. Each and every single one of us that are part of Wayside Chapel, we do not outsource our mission. We initiate, we participate in that mission. We don't outsource it to professional Christians like pastors or missionaries or those that we view. That is their job to be on mission. All of us are called on mission. The local church itself exists on mission. And we don't do this out of guilt, but out of joy. For it was this purpose. This was one of the purposes you were created for. This is the Apostle Paul's point when he writes the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he writes these words. He says, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Those of us here who have received Christ as Savior are now ambassadors for Christ in this lost world. And those who have been reconciled to God through Christ now make an appeal on behalf of Christ so that others may experience the forgiveness of sin and the life of blessing that comes from being in Christ. That is the goal of evangelism. That is the heart of God's redemptive mission. And this is a gospel and a truth worth sharing. And so as we pick up this morning in Acts chapter 13, and we continue our our journey with our brothers Paul and Barnabas, let's remember that though we sit here 2,000 years later on a different continent, speaking a different language and functioning in a different Context, our mission is the same. It's the same as theirs was 2,000 years ago. It's the same redemptive mission of God. It's the same gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same call to evangelism and discipleship. It's the same self giving, self sacrificing expression 
of our triune God that we seek to proclaim with our life and with our lips in Castle Hills, in Stone Oak, in San Antonio, and around the world. That is who we were created to be. Now, as you might recall from last week, as we started the first missionary journey by Paul and Barnabas, they've just set sail from the first Christian church there, Antioch in the east, right there, Antioch First Baptist Christian Church there in Syria. And they head over to Cyprus and then to Perga. And from there, they ultimately land in another Antioch that you see in the northwest part of your picture there. And that's Antioch Pisidian or Pisidian Antioch, which is located in modern day Turkey. And Pisidian Antioch was the most important city of southern Galatia. It was a strategic spot. It was a diverse population with a large Jewish contingent. And a few years later, when Paul writes the, excuse me, writes the epistle of the Galatians to the church in Galatia, these are the churches that he's writing to. This is who he is communicating with. And to get from Perga to Antioch, excuse me, it was no easy task. You had to go through the Taurus Mountains right there, up 4,000 feet, and go 100 miles in and around and above to get to that spot. It was a very difficult journey. But they make their way there and they arrive and then they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath to do what they always do when they arrive at the town, to go preach the gospel to the Jews. And starting in verse 14, this is what it says. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So they arrive, they ultimately head into the synagogue for the Sabbath service. And while there, Paul, being kind of a visiting scholar, a visiting teacher, is invited to speak. And so Paul stands up in verse 16. And it says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul stands up and once he has the attention of the people there, he proceeds to preach the gospel to them. And Paul's sermon here in chapter 13 is very similar to some of the sermons we've already seen in the book of Acts. Where there was Stephen in chapter 7 or Peter's sermons in chapters 2 and 3. And it's it's going to be comprised of three different parts. The first part is the preparation for the Messiah. And that's found in verses 16 through 25. The second section is the rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Messiah. And that's verses 26 through 37. And then the third part is the application and appeal for faith in the Messiah. That's verses 38 through 41. So we have preparation for the Messiah. We have the rejection, crucifixion, and and resurrection of the Messiah. And then we have an appeal for faith in the Messiah. And because we've spent a lot of time in some of those other sermons, this morning I'm going to go pretty quickly through Paul's pausing and just highlighting a few of the unique parts of it, as well as spending a little bit of time on some of the the issues that it raises. So here's the first part, starting in verse 17, the preparation for the Messiah. It says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul basically starts off in his gospel sermon with a history lesson. And he says, guys, y'all know our history. And he starts all the way back with the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, he starts moving through Jewish history. And he goes to Moses and to the, the judges. And he goes to Samuel who appoints Saul who fails. And David comes to reign. And David is promised a descendant who would be the Holy One of Israel. And John the Baptist comes. And John the Baptist says, I am not he. One is coming after me. As he points to Jesus Christ. So Paul starts with a history lesson. And then he shifts to the second phase. The rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Messiah. Starting in verse 26. Paul says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised them up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So then Paul takes the Jewish audience there and he takes them through the rejection, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ. And what he tells them is, guys, this happened. And not only did this happen, this was predicted in the very scriptures that you read every Sabbath. The very ones that you are looking at right now, they predicted these things. In verse 27, Paul says that the prophets predicted that the Messiah would be condemned and it was fulfilled. In verses 28 and 29, Paul says that the prophets predicted the Messiah, excuse me, in verse 27, to be condemned. In verses 28 and 29, Paul says the prophets predicted the Messiah would be killed and it was fulfilled. And then in verses 30 and 31, Paul says that God raised him from the dead and that he appeared to witnesses and that this was predicted in their scriptures as well. And Paul supports this promise. He supports this fulfillment by quoting three Old Testament messianic passages. Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, and Psalm 16-10. All three Old Testament texts found fulfillment in the raising up of Jesus. And Psalm 2-7 is one I want to spend an extra 
minute on. I want to unpack this one a little bit. And Paul quotes this text in verse 33. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the reason why I want to pause here for a second and talk about this verse is because it is verses like this one or others similar to it that some people look to to argue against the full deity of Jesus Christ. In this particular text, Paul is not saying that Jesus was created, nor is he saying that Jesus somehow changed in regard to his deity. Jesus was always the Son of God. But God declared him to be the Son of God at the moment of the resurrection. That was the proof. That's what showed that he was the Davidic king and the rightful Davidic heir. The resurrection was the proof. And this is extremely important because the most common heresy that you are likely to hear day in and day out is a heresy about the deity of Christ. Basically, all cults or all false systems of religion have one thing in common. One thing in common. And that is that they denounce the deity of Jesus. They have a deficient view of the deity of Jesus. They all reduce the deity of Christ in some capacity. Either making him just a good moral teacher and a great human example. Or by applying to him some type of junior varsity God status. Where he's a junior varsity in comparison to the varsity God of the Father. And this is an area of Bible study and theology that I want to implore you to engage in. Engage in a study on the deity of Christ from the scriptures and in the process become exposed and equipped to deal with some of the difficult texts about our Lord and Savior. You will find it a wonderful and a fruitful study. And we have great resources in the library. There's great resources online. There's great books that are not hard to read. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware. Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. A good systematic theology. But this is a worthy, worthy study. And though our time is limited this morning, I do want to give you six reasons. Six arguments from Scripture of the deity of Christ. And we are going to go really fast. And I've put them on slides so you can go back and reference them later on. But I want to just go through these with you guys to point to the fact that Christ is is Lord. He is the fullness of God. And this is what the scripture teaches it. Because if you are not, and then I added one slide of some of the tough sayings about Jesus. Because if you do not know about these, or if you are not exposed to these, I promise you, you're going to meet someone who is, and they're going to bring them to your attention. And so the first, the first argument for the deity of Christ are the words of Jesus himself, especially from the gospel of John. The Gospel of John basically functions like a Trinitarian tract of the New Testament. And Jesus' words in John 8.58 when he's dealing with the teachers there and he tells them before Abraham was, I am. And he gives, hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush where God gave Moses his name. And Jesus is articulating there, I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am Tremendous passage in John chapter 8 from the words of Christ. And then there's the other I am statements throughout the gospel of John. Once again, hearkening back to God's covenant name from Exodus 3. John 10.30 as Jesus is talking, he talks about how I and the Father are one. The unity between the Godhead, Father and Son. 
You have Luke chapter 22 and Mark and Matthew and the synoptics as Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin and he quotes Daniel 7, the son of man who will come on the clouds, ascribing deity to himself once again. This basically seals his fate during his trial straight from the the mouth of, of Christ. We have Jesus speaking to his disciples and his followers in the Great Commission. And he gives them the baptismal formula that we still do to this day. And from Jesus' mouth, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we have are the words of Jesus himself. Secondly, we have other New Testament writers. Certainly the Gospel of John, like I said. These are your high Christology passages, or what they're called. John 1, the first 18 verses in the prologue. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. John 1, 14 and 18, God the one and only, who's at the bosom of the Father. He has explained him, the only begotten God. John 20, when Thomas sees Jesus, and he says, My Lord and my God, Theos. Philippians 2 Jesus' example of humility, and it's only humility because in the very form of God, he's God himself, but then he lowers himself to that of of coming down to earth in what's called the kenosis. So Jesus showing his humility by being in the form of God, but taking on flesh. So you have the words of others. Colossians 1, Paul writes that he's the image of the invisible God, all things that he has created, and he upholds all these things. Colossians 2, 9, in, the full, in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul articulating his deity. Hebrews 1, he's the exact representation of the divine nature of God. He's the exact replica of that. Hebrews 1, angels worship him. And Old Testament passages for God are applied to him. So the second thing we have are New Testament writers. And there's more and There's more, and there's more, and there's more. Titus 2, our great God and Savior. 1 Peter, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even in Acts 20, we're going to talk about the blood of God referring to Christ. So the words of other New Testament writers. Number three, Jesus' divine attributes are applied to Jesus. His preexistence, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his immutability, his sovereignty, his holiness. Divine attributes of God applied to Jesus Christ. Fourth is his divine titles and works. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer. He's born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the Son of God. He's the Most High. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's our Savior, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's our King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Mighty God. He's Father of Eternity. And he forgives sins, activities, and titles of God. Fifthly, this is a big one, he is worshipped. He is worshipped. Exodus chapter 20 makes worship of other gods forbidden. Isaiah chapter 42 says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And yet, Jesus is worshipped at birth He's worshipped during his ministry, he's worshipped before his death, and he's worshipped after the resurrection. Angels worship him, and he receives worship. You'll notice when an angel comes and men fall down and they worship him, what does the angel say? Don't worship me. 
But Jesus receives worship, for he is God. And then sixthly, obviously the resurrection. The fact that the tomb is empty and that the Holy One did not undergo decay. The scriptures teach that Christ is Lord. And there are some other passages, difficult sayings here that I'll put on for you and that you can go look them up. And these are things you need to start being exposed to and equipped to deal with. But the scriptures absolutely articulate the deity of Christ. And this is beyond significant. This is beyond significant. Jesus Christ is the only way that a sinful humanity can be reconciled to a perfectly holy and righteous God because Jesus Christ is the only God-man. He's the only God-man. He is the only one that is able to match and, and fulfill the righteousness of God and his perfect deity and yet represent sinful mankind in his perfect humanity. He is what theologians call the theanthropic savior. You probably didn't even know that was a word. He's the theanthropic savior. He is the God-man savior. Fully God, fully man. He is unique beyond compare. His beauty is inexhaustible. You cannot plumb the depths of who he is. And any view that diminishes his deity or diminishes humanity is unacceptable and is not Christian. It's just not Christian. And so after clearly articulating that the resurrection was predicted through the scriptures and fulfilled by Jesus, Paul now moves to the final point of his gospel sermon, an appeal for belief, an appeal for belief by the folks there. Starting in verse 38, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then here's the warning. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So Paul preaches a gospel, the same gospel he always preaches, one of justification by faith, and clearly states that the forgiveness of sins comes through faith alone in Christ alone. And he finishes with a warning passage from Habakkuk chapter 1, saying that judgment will come to those who don't believe. Judgment will come. And as Paul finishes up his sermon in verse 41, the rest of the chapter, verses 42 through 52, detail the response of the people there. And the response is mixed. It is a combination of praise and of persecution. Many people are excited in coming to faith, so much so that the entire city is invited, comes back the next week to hear Paul preach on the Sabbath. So there's a lot of exciting things happening, but jealousy is also rising in the Jews there. And they start persecuting Paul and Barnabas and forcing him to leave. But Paul and Barnabas are not discouraged because they have great clarity on their mission. Great clarity. They were to preach the gospel and to make disciples here, near, and far, no matter the cost. This was the call in their life, and this is the call on ours. 
And so with that being said, I want to finish this morning with kind of four principles of evangelism, four exhortations, encouragements that we can glean from the Apostle Paul so that we can take the gospel to our workplace, to our home, to our school, to the people we interact with in whatever sphere God has placed us in. And so the first principle is this. Evangelism involves a relationship, so reach out. Evangelism involves a relationship, so reach out. Now, it doesn't need to necessarily be a long-term relationship, does it? Paul arrives in Pisidian Antioch. He meets the folks there. Hey, hey, how you doing? And next thing you know, he's in the middle of the synagogue saying, Men of Israel, listen up. And then he drops a gospel bomb right there in the middle with the shrapnel going everywhere. So we have nothing against street evangelism. We have nothing against sharing your faith as soon as you meet somebody. But a relationship can certainly be helpful when sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number one, evangelism involves a relationship. Secondly, evangelism involves a clear gospel. So know it and be able to communicate it. John Piper writes, If you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God. You get converts to an illusion. And this is not evangelism, but deception. So evangelism involves sharing an accurate gospel. It involves sharing about the human problem of sin and the consequences of that sin. It involves sharing about the person and work of Jesus Christ and the consequences of his life, death, and resurrection. And it involves sharing about the need to believe and the consequences for believing and not believing in him. The reality of sin, the complete atoning work of our Savior, and the call to belief. That is the gospel, and true evangelism is impossible apart from a clear communication of that. Thirdly, we have evangelism happens in a variety of cultures and in a variety of contexts. So build bridges. We actually have a ministry at Wayside reaching out to Muslims called Bridge Builders, Building Bridges with Muslims. Building Bridges. Notice that when Paul speaks to the Jews in chapter 13 at the synagogue, he reasons from what? From the scriptures. He reasons from the scriptures. He gives them, he goes to the Old Testament. When he preaches to the Greeks in chapter 17 in Athens, which we're going to come to in a few weeks, he doesn't go to the Old Testament. He goes to general revelation. And he takes a totally different route with them because they're part of a different culture and reside in a different context. And yet Paul navigates those waters and brings it back to a clear articulation of the gospel. Just like he does in chapter 13. He just takes a different route to get there. So evangelism happens in a variety of contexts and in a variety of cultures. So build bridges. Many of the people that you involve yourself with, many of the people that you know in your various spheres have either no clue or a wrong view of what it means to be a Christian. They either have no clue or some characterized view of what the gospel is. And because of this, we need to be able to both build bridges relationally and conceptually and theologically. And sometimes that may mean talking to somebody who has some knowledge of the, of the scriptures and the gospel, but you've got to take them through it in the scripture and teach them the true gospel. 
But it also may mean you need to build bridges with somebody who has no idea what the scriptures teach and doesn't care. To them, the Bible's not the answer. The Bible's the question. And so at that point, you have to build bridges sometimes using other things. Topics like truth or morality or justice or beauty or goodness, which lay the groundwork for then our ability to share the gospel. Because at the end of the day, our goal is the good news of the gospel. Our goal is Jesus Christ. So evangelism involves a relationship. Evangelism involves a clear gospel. Evangelism involves a variety of cultures and contexts. And lastly, evangelism involves our obedience. But salvation belongs to God. Evangelism involves our obedience, but never forget that salvation belongs to God. In verse 48, after Paul has shared the gospel and people are responding, this is what Luke writes down to describe what's going on. Luke writes in verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God does not need us to accomplish his salvation. He is God. He is able to do that on his own. We cannot save anyone in our own strength. We cannot save anyone at all. But God has chosen us to be vessels, to be stewards, to be those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a fallen world. And our obedience to God is our gift. It's our gift. Our job is not to win people to Christ. Our job is to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel with our lives and with our lips and then trust in him and his spirit to move and bring about the necessary faith for salvation. These are just four principles for evangelism as we go out into our context. It involves a relationship. It involves a clear gospel. It might involve a variety of contexts and cultures. And lastly, it involves obedience. And then salvation belongs to God. I want to close with a quick story. I had an amazing experience this weekend or this past week in my office. I was sitting in there speaking with a young lady from our singles group named Shampa. And Shampa comes from Bangladesh. And she has a Muslim background. But she's been coming to Wayside the last few months or so because of a connection, because of a relationship she has in our singles group. And as Shampa has come these last few months, she has developed relationships and friendships with some of our singles in the group. And those singles have loved her well. They haven't judged her. They haven't been ugly towards her. They haven't uh, looked down on her because she comes from a different place or speaks with an accent or even comes with a different religious upbringing and background. They have just flat out loved her. And while spending time with folks there in Momentum and coming to the, the, the service, she comes at 11 o'clock, sits right over there, she has heard a clear gospel. She's heard a clear gospel, not just from Roger and myself, but from other people in our singles ministry who are sharing life with her. And yet despite that, Shampa still had questions. I mean, she's grown up a Muslim. Her worldviews are colliding. And so she came up to me a few weeks ago and she said, Michael, can I come meet with you? Because I have some questions I'd like to ask you about Jesus, about the gospel, about Christianity. I'd just like to talk to you. 
So we met a few weeks ago. And, and as I was meeting with her, I was trying to build bridges. I was trying to build a bridge with her from her understanding of God in Islam to the Christian understanding of God in Christianity with a focused emphasis on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last Sunday, I was over at 115 Ivywood. We were about to start Momentum, our singles class. And Shampa grabs me and she takes me to the kitchen. And she says, I just want to tell you that this past week, I believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. She said, I received the Lord this week and I want to be baptized. And so we're going to baptize her next week at the 11 o'clock service right here. And then Shampa stood in front of the entire class of 70 people or so, and she shared her story and how God had worked in her life, bringing her to this place of faith. And as part of her story, this is what she said. There were authentic relationships with Christians who loved her. And this was amazing. This was not just at Wayside. Christians that she had bumped into in Bangladesh or when she was in Egypt or when she was near Madagascar and then when she came to the States. But Christians that just stood out and loved her well. There was a clear gospel of sin and salvation and a call to belief presented more than once by more than one person that she knew. There were bridges that were built to help her understand what the difference was between her upbringing in Islam and the Christian view of God. And then after all of that, God moved. And God did what only God can do. And this didn't happen because of some superhuman act by a bunch of spiritual giants. This happened because Christians were acting like Christians. And because God is God. And we, as God's people, are blessed to not only be recipients of God's free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith in Christ our Lord, but we are blessed to be those who get to share that with others. We are able to communicate the beauty of that gift with those around us. And I pray that we as a church, we as Wayside Chapel, would have a passion for the lost. A passion for the lost in our neighborhood, in our city, in our country, and around the world. As we, the people of God, come together as the church of God, made in the image of God, getting to express the triune, redemptive mission of God. And that is a truth and a gospel worth sharing. And friends, that is a life worth living. That is a life worth living. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we just thank you that you are a God of redemption. That God, when we turn from you in our sin and we rebelled against you, you have every right in your holiness and in your justice to just cut us off and let us go our own way. And yet you, God, in your great love and in your great mercy did what only you could do. God, you became one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You tabernacled with your people in the form of a human. 
And God, you lived a perfect life, a sinless life. You did what we could not do, fulfilling the perfect requirements and righteousness of the law. Yet instead of being esteemed for that, God, you were crucified. And yet you weren't crucified because the Romans and the Jews crucified you, God. You willingly went to the cross where you died for our sins. And God, you show that you conquered death and you show that you truly defeated sin because on the third day, you rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And God, you say that anyone who will turn to you, that will place their trust in you, that will place their faith in you, God, our sin will be transferred to you and your righteousness will be given to us. And somehow in that great supernatural cosmic transaction, we are reconciled to a holy God saved for all eternity, made to walk in a newness of life and secured an eternal destination with you. And so, Lord, we praise you for your gospel. And God, we pray that you would ignite a passion in us to not outsource that mission, but to initiate and participate in it, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our city, and in our world. For your glory, as we live the life that you have called us to live. And so, God, I pray if there's anyone here who's never taken that step, God, I pray your spirit would stir in their heart, that they would respond with faith, and that they would come to know you as their Lord. And God, for the rest of us, would you send us out as people bringing the good news of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it, not worrying about winning people for Christ, but, by, by, but worried about being obedient to our master who has called us to engage on his great redemptive mission. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we have prayer partners up here that would love to pray with you. If there's anything um, in your life that you need prayer for, I'll be up here. I'd love to chat with you. But have a wonderful Sunday. Have a great Mother's Day. And we'll see you next week.